Good evening, everyone. We're glad. Oh, watch out. <laughs> Sorry, there's only one left. I think that's the first time on live stream we've had anybody throw anything at a preacher or a pastor. <clears throat> Thank you. All right. Well, good evening, everyone. We're glad that you are here with us tonight. If you're tuning in online, thank you for joining us. Um, let's open in a word of prayer, and then we will begin our hymnology class and look at our second hymn tonight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you, Lord, thanking you for uh, the grace of your church, Lord, those that um, serve in, in many capacities. But Lord, down through the centuries, many people have served through the area of music in composition, in poems, in um, instruments, Lord, in order to benefit your church, Lord, in order to glorify and to magnify you. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that we are the recipients of these talents um, and and people making use of their natural and spiritual abilities, uh, that we have been taught your word through songs we have been encouraged. We have been humbled at times by songs that we have sung Lord, we have been called to repentance. Lord, many have even come to salvation by hearing the gospel preached through music and words, um, songs that are sung in in, in congregations. And so as we look at tonight's hymn, may we be uh, amazed at who you are. May we be uh, mindful of your grace and encouraged by it. And um, Lord, may you be glorified. And may we realize that saints of old have served us for many years. And even now we have the opportunity to serve the church through music, and maybe in generations to come, people will be singing songs that are written this year, this century. And, uh, but through it all, may you be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, t- <coughs> excuse me. tonight's hymn is Amazing Grace. There is probably no hymn more popular than Amazing Grace. Um, and I would dare anybody to throw the name of a title of any song out there to challenge that. All right? I feel pretty confident about that. Would anybody say that they know of any song more popular, more hymn, more popular in Amazing Grace? Probably not, right? Even though there are some popular ones. Amazing Grace has been played with bagpipes. It's been played with rock bands. It's been sung in churches. It's been sung in stadiums. It's sung at funerals and in Sunday worship services. Young and old recognize it. People who aren't even Christians recognize the song, and they likely even know some of the words. It crosses over various Christian denominations, and it was written in 1772, making it 252 years old. It's a very old song, a quarter of a century. It's recognized across the globe, and it's even in the Guinness Book of World Records, having been sung in 49 different languages by a 17,000-person choir in 2010. Imagine a song worthy of 17,000 people, and they are going to sing it in 49 different languages, putting it into the Guinness Book of World Records. And tonight our hymnology class will focus on this song and its author. And so uh, let's talk about the author of Amazing Grace. Let's talk about his story. Amazing Grace, written by a gentleman named John Newton, who was born in London, August 4th, 1725, a very long time ago. He died at the age of 82. Unlike our author last week, St. Francis of Assisi, who died at the age of 44, this gentleman lived to be a long time, lived a long time. He died on December 21st, 1807. His father was a shipmaster, and his mother was an instrument maker. And you'll kind of see how both of those things play out in his life as we go through a brief biography. Uh, But his mother died when he was just six years old. When Newton was 18, he was compelled or actually forced. He was forced to go into the Navy by the British government. At certain times in history, one could be hanged in the United Kingdom for not joining the Navy. Um, Did anybody force you to join uh, the Army? No? All right. Nobody threatened to hang you? All right, (laughs) nothing like that, right? So the government basically used the threat of force uh, to get men to join the Navy back then. And this was a common practice when volunteers for military service were less common, and choosing a career in the military was something that very few people did. They were actually compelled to do so. So not long after being forced to go into the military, um, Newton, he actually tried to desert the ship that he was on. Um, He was caught, 
He was tied up and he was beaten in front of his shipmates. Newton struggled to get along with his shipmates and his captain. He even, he even contemplated killing his captain and then he contemplated committing suicide by jumping overboard. Thank you, brother. I appreciate that. This was all prior to his conversion and becoming a Christian. So just some perspective on this. Newton was later transferred to another ship, and he struggled to get along with that crew as well. The ship was called the Pegasus, and it was actually a slave ship that was headed for West Africa. The crew didn't like him, so guess what they did? No. (laughs) That would end the story too quick, and we got to get to the writing of the hymn. They left him in West Africa with a slave trader. So he went from seamate to actually becoming a slave. The slave master took Newton, he made him a slave, and then he gave John Newton to his wife to serve her. So Newton himself ended up in slavery. Having been missing for some time, Newton's father sent out another ship and another captain to look for Newton and try to find him. This sea captain eventually found John Newton in 1748, and Newton was brought home. <clears throat> on his way home, so he's rescued from slavery, on his way home, had an amazing experience from, uh, dur- uh, during this rescue. The ship that he was on was caught in the middle of a storm and off the sea coast of Ireland, and it began to sink. And so we see that Newton moves from seamate to slave. Now he's in a storm. And Newton's response as the ship is going down was to pray to God and ask for help and rescue. The storm began to die down, and eventually the ship made it to port in Ireland. And Newton, having experienced this, began to pray. He began to read the scriptures, and he actually, at this point, became to believe that God's word was true. Now, that doesn't make him a Christian at this point. He just believes that God's word is true. And this was on March 10th, 1748. And so from seamate to sleeve, to the storm, to the scriptures, we now see that even though he believes God's word is true, he's not a Christian, he ends up getting involved in the slave trade business, which you think would be weird, or uh, would be hard for him to do, having just been a slave. Nevertheless, he gets into the slave trade business, and by Newton's own testimony, if you read the things that he said, it wasn't until some time later that he said he became a believer in Christ after the storm. It wasn't for a while afterwards. And then he says he finally experienced full conversion, true conversion, and then he began at that point to despise slavery. So he had this quasi-experience, this quasi-conversion experience in 1748. But he continued on in the slave trade business, and he made several voyages out to sea as a captain of a slave ship. And again, remember, he's not a Christian. He just has the appearance of a religious person at this point. Um, He knows God's word is true, but no faith in Christ. And it wasn't until about five years into the slave trading business and slave owning business that Newton says he experienced his conversion. Um, At some point, he does suffer a stroke. In 1754, he suffers a stroke at the young age of 29. Okay, I believe you're about that age, right, Albert? Right? Suffers a stroke... At young age, you're probably right around there too, right? I won't ask, but close. The, the young men having, you guys are probably, in, everybody except me is in that age here, okay? But he has a stroke at the young age of 29, and at that point he stops sailing the seas, and he continues to manage slave operations from the land, not going out to sea. Now, many people would ask this, because five years have transpired, okay? Um, if Newton eventually became, became a Christian, why did it take so long for him to renounce slavery? I mean, don't you think that's a valid uh, question? If you became a Christian uh, last week and you were involved in uh, some heinous sins, you'd be like, hey, um, other people might ask, why are you still doing that? And for years, and that's a valid qu- uh, question to ask. How could he, as a Christian, have had slaves? Isn't that anti-Christian? And the answer is yes, it is anti-Christian. And to help the situation, make sense of it, Let's allow Newton to speak for himself, because here's what he had to say about his involvement in slavery. He says this, he says, the slave trade was always unjustifiable. These are his words, always unjustifiable. But inattention and interest 
prevented for a time the evil from being perceived. Let's break that down. What is he saying? He's saying that there was never a time when slavery was okay. It was never right or moral. The reason that he didn't see it as evil, because it was because of these words, inattention and because of interest. Inattention and interest. What does that mean? It means that it was something he never gave great consideration to. That's inattention. It, wasn't, it, it was something that seemed beneficial to him, financially beneficial. It was of interest to him. Okay? It made sense to do this. In other words, even as a young Christian, he was blinded to its evils because he hadn't thought about it much, and it seemed to be beneficial. Okay? Of course, we all want to throw stones at Newton at this point, right? I mean, come on, dude, seriously? Are you telling me that you just didn't know from God's word that slavery was wrong? You're pulling our leg, right? But let me ask you, let me ask you this. Isn't that how all of us are when it comes to our sin when we are first Christians? When we become followers of Christ, we don't even know all of the areas where we are sinning. Am I right? There are many areas, uh, even David prayed for the Lord to reveal his hidden faults. Okay? As we grow in the word and we learn scripture, we begin to see things in our lives that need correcting. Right? In our life group study, we're going through uh, the peacemaking book. And in this thing, we're learning, oh, wow, there's so many things that I've done wrong in my life and harboring grudges and trying to manipulate people to get my way. And I haven't sought peace the way that God wants. And so we're, even after being Christians many years, we're learning some of these things. And so um, like us, he didn't see how sinful his ways were, but eventually he did. And he began to renounce them. So that's how it is with us, right? We see things that we eventually, uh, we eventually see things that we need to quit, that we need to quit fast and in a hurry, but it doesn't always happen right away, right? Now, the scripture has a, a word for this. It's called sanctification, okay? Sanctification. That's the spirit working in us using God's word to remove the experience of sin from our lives. So that's all this is. It's nothing other than sanctification, it doesn't make the sin right, does it? But it explains why it took a while for him to see this as sinful. Even today, I would say I, I know there are there are Christians who think abortion is okay, right? And and that's murder. But I would say they haven't thought about it much, and they need to grow in God's word in order for their mind to be changed by that, right? But we would say yes, they're genuine Christians, but they uh, promote or or adhere to a view of the world that is wrong and sinful. They need Christ to sanctify their minds. There are, Christian, there are Christians who think it is okay to live sexually however they want, and it's not true. And eventually, they see things in the world like, oh man, I need to stop doing this, okay? They need Christ to sanctify their minds. Even though they believe that Christ died and rose again for them, okay? As Lord, they still need maturing. We all do. And changing a mind in order to get remaining sin out of our lives. Yes, it's horrible when any of us are stuck in sin. But like Newton, inattention and interest often blinds us, okay? So we don't want to justify what he did. We don't want to justify what we do when it's wrong. Um, We might see something producing good results in our life, like habitually lying. There are Christians that habitually lie, that steal and think it's okay because the ends justify the means, Even though those are very common commandments in Scripture, eventually, as they heed the word and listen to it, God begins to prick their heart and sanctify them. Even though they've repented, they are coming under the mastery of our Lord Jesus Christ. But that's what he means when he says the inattention and interest blinded him to the evils of slavery. But by God's grace, eventually, Newton saw slavery for what it was, pure evil, and he became a staunch advocate for the abolition of it. Let me say that again. He became a staunch advocate for the abolition of slavery. He became, in other words, an abolitionist. And an abolitionist is someone who wants to stop slavery and the slave trade. And so he worked toward that end. Well, in 1750, as we move on with his life, he married a young lady, Mary Caitlett. They adopted two nieces who were orphans. Eventually, Newton having experienced true conversion and growing in the Lord. He wanted to become a priest um, in the Church of England, and so he began to study Greek and Hebrew. He ended up becoming a lay pastor or a non-ordained minister. And later, he applied 
And uh, to become an official priest and, and become official pastor in the Church of England in 1757. And um, it took a while, it took seven years, but he was finally ordained in 1764. He became a local rector, all right, that's another word for a priest or a curate, um, in Buckinghamshire. So Newton was part of the Church of England. Um, did, you co- did you cover Steve Church of England in your history class? Okay, so we're not going to go into all that, but the the, Reform, uh, the, the sorry the Church of England um, separated from the Catholic Church in 1534, came back together with it, separated again. But like the Catholic Church, um, you know the Catholic uh, Church has a hierarchy of you know you got your local parishioners and you got cardinals and so on and so forth. And the the Church of England is much like that, but they don't have a pope. Okay, um, the lowest level of leadership in the uh, Church of England is the local. Uh, pastor, the local rector, and he is responsible for that local congregation. Of course, we're independent church. We're, we're Baptist, so we don't have any of that kind of hierarchy. Um, but uh, anyway, Newton's at this lowest level, and he began to have a lot of influence as a, as a young uh, pastor. This was his first position at this church in Buckinghamshire, and this is where he met a man named William Cooper, okay? You'll see his name up on the screen. I am pronouncing it right. It's not Cowper, all right? Uh, It's not Cowpie, all right? It's Cooper. So William Cooper, and this guy's a poet. Together, they began to write hymns together. William Cooper is most famous for his hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Now, you may know that song. That, That is one that's been on my hit list for songs to teach our congregation. We haven't gotten there yet, but eventually we will sing that song in our congregation. So that's what Whelan Cooper is most famous for. 16 years later, Newton was reassigned to be a rector in London at another church, St. Mary Woolnoth. This is an Anglican church, again, Church of England, still stands today, and he served there for 27 years from 1780 to 1807. You don't have to remember all these dates, but he was there a long time. Now listen, this is where he met a guy, another William. He met William Cooper, the poet. At this other church, he met a guy named William Wilberforce. And if you are aware of the abolition movement in England, you will recognize this name. It's a powerful name. It's well known. He's a Christian politician. He was a member of the British Parliament, and he helped bring an end to slavery in the United Kingdom, okay? Not worldwide, but in the area that God had him. And so Newton, pastoring over Wilberforce, they worked together, they became close friends, and they worked again towards this end of ending slavery. They were both abolitionists. And so Newton's impact on Christianity worldwide and local where he was cannot be underestimated It cannot be overstated. This wasn't just an ordinary pastor. He had a historical effect on uh, on the world. He helped shape our musical worship with one of the most popular, if not the most popular hymn that's ever been sung. He helped shape public policy, and he saved countless lives, and he helped to end the British slave trade. This battle against slavery lasted for decades. On May 1st, 1807, the Slave Trade Act was passed, which made slave trading illegal in the British Empire. And while this didn't abolish slavery everywhere, it started a wave that continued to spread everywhere else. And Newton died six months after this Slave Trade Act was passed. So he was able to, to see a, a, a long-time dream fulfilled, and God bless him in that way. Newton, if you don't know... Um, He also wrote the preface to John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. And so he's well known for that as well. But the two things that Newton is most famous for are, one, his hymn, Amazing Grace, and his move from being a slave trader to an abolitionist. It's amazing that Newton, who once found himself in slavery, found himself being a a slave owner, and then he became a, a slave abolitionist. He just ran the whole gamut of it all. And so uh, what a blessing to hear of that story. All in all, Newton was a slave owner for nine years, but he believed he was not a Christian during the first five of those years. Having recognized his sin and error, he repented, 
And then he began to work to free the Africans that he once enslaved. The gospel of Christ, just like he was forced to go into the Navy, the gospel of Christ is what compelled him, and it forced him to see slavery as vile, and so he worked towards its end. Regarding his involvement as a slave trader and as an owner of slaves, Newton said this. Listen to what he says. He says, it will always be a subject of humiliating reflection to me that I was once an active instrument in a business at which my heart now shudders. That is a changed heart because of the gospel. Having looked at his story, let's look a little bit more at some of the things that he said. Let's look at his sayings. And a few I'll just read with little to no comment. He says, How unspeakably wonderful to know that all our concerns are held in the hands that bled for us. That's, that is a beautiful way to put things. The hands that bled for us, they hold all of our concerns. What amazing Savior we have. He said this about clothing. I just thought it was an interesting quote. Not that clothing is an issue for anybody here, but he says, so dress and then conduct yourself so the people who have been in your company will not recall, recall what you had on. That's a pretty cool thing, right? That they're more observant of your character and they could care less about what you're wearing to impress or not impress or rich or poor. They're blown away by your character, by the godliness that's in you. He says another thing. He says, as to myself... If I were not a Calvinist, I should think, I, I, he says, I'm sorry, I think I should have no more hope of success in preaching to men than to horses or cows. So his confidence was in the Lord and uh, in changing sinners. And it's interesting how, how Calvinists, we can have hope. We can have hope in evangelizing and preaching, and we can have confidence of some measure of success, if you will, because ultimately our confidence is in God, not in how we say it. Not in how clever we are and our ability to reason or ability to tear down other people's beliefs. It really is the power of God in his word that helps people to come to Christ. And Newton felt the same. Well, mankind, we know, has a responsibility to believe the gospel. And we know that he's accountable to believe the gospel. Right? When one is spiritually dead, they cannot respond to the gospel call unless God revives their spirit and makes them anew, regenerates them, gives them new birth. And so no matter how good you are at presenting the gospel, no one will ever get saved unless God moves in their lives, okay? It's God's sovereign grace that breathes life spiritually into any of us. And that's what the song Amazing Grace says. I was blind, but now I what? Do blind people make themselves to see? The blind, there's a song that I love, the blind don't gain their sight by opening their eyes. They have to depend upon Christ to give them sight to see. And so, um, <coughs> excuse me, something else John Newton said, when I see thee as thou art, referring to God, when I see you as you are, I praise you as I ought to. That is amazing. And that's one of the things we do in Scripture when we preach. We're trying to unveil God for you, show him to you in the word so that you will love him as you should. He says, of all people, another thing, of all people who engage in controversy, we who are Calvinists are most expressly bound by our own principles to exercise of gentleness and moderation. Now, we don't talk like this, right? And so some of these sentences need just a little bit of explanation. Like, who talks like this? Um, 250 year old English, right? Um, what's he getting at? All right, he's saying that that we believe who believe wholeheartedly in the grace of God, in the doctrines of grace, from start to finish. When it comes to salvation, it's all about God. If that's us, and if God has dealt mercifully and graciously and gently and kindly with us, then we ought to treat others the same when we are engaged in controversy. Now, that controversy could be a heated discussion. Right? You're talking with somebody about different points of theology. It might even be he's referring to uh, maybe his discussions with those who were slave owners, trying to convince them not to be slave owners. That would be a controversy, right? something controversial in his day. But his whole point is that if you've been affected by the grace of God and being treated by the grace of God, then in your conversations, when you are in, involved in some sort of controversy, you, are, you should be doubly bound to the principles that God has shown to you 
and exercise gentleness and moderation and self-control and not attack people in their character, uh, but rather address the issues that are at hand. And so it doesn't mean being weak or cowardly, right? We have to stand against evil in this world, but it does mean that we use our words carefully and graciously, words intended to magnify God's glory, words intended to serve humanity, using words that aren't meant to attack others out of the anger of man, but words that are meant to further the kingdom of God. And I think it's, that's a very important thing to learn from Newton that, uh, because there's a, a thousand things that we can get into that are plaguing the world, that are, pol- you, some people would call them political issues, but they're moral issues. And sometimes when Christians talk to people with opposing views that are simple, we get pretty ugly, and we're not gentle, and we're not moderate in the way that we speak. And we're not gracious as God has been gracious to us. And so it's very important that we, uh, we listen to some of the things that uh, Pastor John Newton had to say. He says um, a couple more things. Although my, song, uh, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I'm a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. Some amazing stuff the guy said, right? Lastly, he's, and this is referring to slavery, he says... When the women and girls are taken on board a ship, naked, trembling, terrified, perhaps almost exhausted with cold, fatigue, and hunger, they're often exposed to the wanton rudeness of white savages. So the slaves that the people of that day said were savages, he's saying, no, here's the savages, the people that are making them slaves and abusing them and hurting them. And so he saw slavery for what it was, okay? So that is a, <laughs> a brief biography. Uh, uh, many books have been written on, the, on John Newton, and you can uh, buy one for yourself and read a lot more. Um, but that's a brief summary of his life. Let's talk about his song. I've been singing Amazing Grace for 45 years, and I learned a lot of things about the song just by looking at it. So check this out. Okay, and <clears throat> in most Anglican churches of his time, um, so think 250 years ago, there was a psalm book or hymnal of the day, Psalter, called the Sternhold and Hopkins Psalter, and it was used in congregational singing. This was their songbook for public worship. It was a collection of hymns, and it grew from the 1500s to the 1600s. John Newton, though, was a little bit of a rebel when it came to this kind of thing. He wanted to sing songs that centered around his sermons. And when he couldn't find hymns that centered around what he was preaching on, he would write his own hymns, okay? Will and Cooper helped him with this. Remember the first church that he worked at, okay? In 1779, Newton and Cooper, their collaborative efforts yielded 349 hymns. You know how many hymns we have in our church? Or not hymns, but songs that we sing? 150 and about 15 of those are Christmas songs. And so we're not, we're not even to half of what they were teaching their church, right? You would have hated these guys, right? Man, that's three new songs every week, right? Like, it's hard for us to learn the song every three to four weeks. And these guys wrote 349 for their church. 67 were written by Cooper, the rest by Newton. If you thought we sang a lot, then you'd have struggled in their church too. Um, with the stern... Sternhold and Hopkins Psalter, along with Newton and Cooper's songs, that's over 500 songs that these people had in their, their music repertoire when it came to public worship. That's a lot of songs to choose from, okay? So Newton and Cooper, they wrote these songs. They made this hymnal for this purpose. And here's what he says, why they did this. To promote the faith and the comfort of sincere Christians. Listen to that to promote the faith and comfort of sincere Christians. In other words, it was meant to constantly teach that Christ is the Savior, promote their faith, right, so that believers would find assurance and hope in Christ. These songs were meant to lead them to Christ so that they would be comforted and have hope that all is well with them and God. One of the hymns that was in their hymnal was Amazing Grace, okay, written in 1772. It was and he wrote this song to accompany a sermon that he was going to preach on New Year's Day. We just passed New Year's Day. So it was around this time this year, right? But back in 1773, <clears throat> that was uh, 200 years before I was born, all right? 
Um, crazy. So awesome song. Now, I didn't know this, right, about Newton, that he had these songs, uh, and he would write songs to fit his sermons, and, or, um, but this is somewhat occasionally a practice in our church. In other words, we try to sing songs that are centered around the sermon. If you pay attention and, uh, and you're studious of it, you will notice that as Pastor Steve is preaching, or I, or John, that we will say many things that are almost direct quotations of the songs that we sang. And uh, it's on purpose. Right? Even though I don't read all of Steve's sermons, I look at the passage of Scripture and John in my sermon and say, this is the theme, this is what the text is saying. If, if I were preaching it, I would probably talk about these things, right? And these other Scriptures pop up in mind. And all of a sudden, now I got four, five, six, eight songs to choose from on a Sunday morning, and then we order them in a way that's beneficial and helpful to minister to us. But that's what he did. And this is why we introduce new songs on occasion, okay? There are things in Scripture that we do not sing about. We don't have songs that teach those things. And oftentimes, I'll go on the hunt for what God wants us to know. In fact, this Sunday, Steve's preaching again on the Lord's Supper, and we're on the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Prayer, and we are going to sing a song called the Lord's Prayer. Um, and I found one. I should have found one for last week, but I fell asleep at the wheel, so sorry about that, brother. Right? But I'll tell you what, this is, um, and even though this is about amazing grace, I'm going to cue you into some of the things that we do at our church. This is why we add new songs at our church for our congregational singing. So even though a lot of people will recommend songs to me for public singing, some of them are good recommendations, some of them aren't so good, okay? But we generally add songs out of necessity. Does that make sense? Not, not, not because I want to make so-and-so happy or I like a song, because there's a lot of songs that I really like, and I would love to add them. We, gen- we generally add songs out of necessity, okay, for... Uh, for, for the sermon's content, due to scriptural content, not preference or personal desire. Our, so our aim is not just to add more songs, but to add content that helps us to remember the word of God and to praise our God properly. So let's look at Amazing Grace. <clears throat> let's examine the content of the, of the lyrics. What I find marvelous about this hymn is that it's so simplistic in its lyrics. It's accessible to all people. You don't have to have a thesaurus. You can't even say that word, right? Thesaurus, you don't have to have a dictionary by your side to understand what is being said. I'm going to read through the words, and then I'm going to make some comments about them. So let's look at all seven verses. They're on a sheet that you have. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. It was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. This grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. Yes, when this flesh and heart shall fail, and mortal life shall cease. I shall possess within the veil a life of joy and peace. The earth shall soon dissolve like snow, the sun forbear to shine, but God who called me here below will be forever mine. And when we've been there 10,000 years, bright, shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. There's seven verses of this hymn, most hymnals will have three, four, five verses. If you flip the sheet over, you'll see that uh, this is a common uh, page taken out of a normal type of hymn book for public domain. It means it can be used by anybody at any point. But it's fascinating as you navigate through the song, you see how many scriptural truths are present. So let's kind of make our way through the song. Now that we've read it, let's make our way through it. Okay, look at verse one. He takes the theme of human depravity, our sinfulness, our wretchedness. And he explains that this depravity means that we are lost, but we have been found by God. We were blind, but God made us to see. Indeed, Jesus said he came to seek and to save who? The lost. Luke 19.10. Newton picks up on 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, which speaks of Satan blinding the minds of unbelievers to keep them 
He blinds them and keeps them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. They cannot see how glorious Christ is and what he has done for us in the gospel. Jesus, who was the image of God. That's what Satan does. He keeps us blind so that we cannot see that Jesus is God. So that we can't see Jesus is glorious. Uh, especially glorious he is shown to be in his death and resurrection. And Newton knows that if he sees Jesus for who he is and what he has done, then that can only be the grace of God at work. Amazing grace. In verse 2, Newton proclaims that it was God's grace. It was God's grace, God's kindness to him that helped him to fear God. Because the fear of God is the beginning of all wisdom. If we're ever going to be saved, we need to fear God's wrath, right? But it's that same grace that caused him to fear God. It was that same grace that relieved those fears of God. Are you tracking that in the song? Right? Romans 3.10 reminds us that no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands and no one seeks God. But a few verses later in Romans 3.18, the Apostle Paul writes that unbelievers have no fear of God before their eyes. That's human depravity. We can't understand what God wants us to understand about himself. We don't seek God and we don't fear God in our natural state. So how is it that we come to understand the grace of God? How is it that we sought God if Scripture says no one seeks him? How is it that we come to fear the wrath of God? Newton says it's grace. It's grace. Indeed it is. Newton recognized that a proper fear of God could only be brought about by grace. And as you fear God, and you're like, my God, he, he's supposed to damn me for my sin. That's grace that helps you to feel that fear. It's that same grace that relieves those fears by showing you how God saves those who should be afraid of him. Are you tracking me? Grace shows you the fear of God, and then grace takes away that fear in Jesus Christ. Okay? God has taught us to fear the grace has taught us to fear the Lord. Grace has relieved those fears through the gospel. In verse 3. We see that Newton expresses that he's been through dangers, toils. That's hard labor. When did he go through hard labor? Probably when he was a slave, right? Probably when he was working on ships. Snares. This thing's snare is something that attempts to trap you, which is like a reference to sin. He's been through many of these things. And this is where he recognizes, in verse 3, the grace of God in his life. Grace is not some theological notion. Grace is the hand of God, actively moving all throughout Newton's life and our lives as well. Through his enslavement and mistreatment, through his near-death experience at sea, through his own sin of slave-owning and trading, God brought him through all of that in order to save him. Grace brought Newton this far. Do you see who's writing the song, right? This song is from a very personal experience, okay? <clears throat> and it is grace that will lead him home into the eternal presence of God, home. If you move on to verse 4, you see that Newton recognizes the strength of God's promises, his word, his word my hope secures. He recognizes that God is not man, that he should lie. Therefore, whatever God says is good, and it's as good as done. If it hasn't yet happened, though, it's still good. God's faithfulness to his own nature is what guarantees hope for Newton. And this is what Scripture shows us. The Old Testament, it contains promises made concerning Jesus, and the New Testament shows us those promises are fulfilled. It shows you can trust what God says, even though it takes a while sometimes for God to do what he said he's going to do. And one of the things yet to be fulfilled, right, we can trust, like Newton, is that Christ is coming again, okay? But if God has been trustworthy, and he's been faithful to his word all these thousands of years in actual human history, then our hope is secure, and we can trust him. And so Newton says, as, as long as he is alive, in his song he says, all right, as long as I'm alive, I know that God is my shield. An, ult, an ultimate danger, he is my shield. An ultimate danger will not harm me. And he says, God will be my portion. That means his destiny, that God is my destiny, not some place. Even though we will inherit, like when we die, we go to heaven and then we will come back and inherit a new earth. Our destiny ultimately is God. That's whom we are headed towards. God is his protector, his final destination. What an amazing truth to guard our hearts. We belong to God 
He is where we are headed. And you can now see those transitions to the next verse. Now, let me just stop for a second and help you. Let's backtrack because there's a timeline in that I didn't know that was an amazing grace. Watch how the song progresses. <clears throat> he's, he's starting pre-conversion, and then when you get to the end of the song, he's in eternity for when we've been there thousands of years. And every verse in there is, is kind of moving through his life, okay? Newton's telling a story of grace, and he's incorporating himself into the song. So it's not, as these, it's not as if these musical verses are disconnected. They're not just seven random thoughts that he had. This is almost like an exposition of his life as he ex- is expositing God's grace. There's this theme of grace running through them all, and it's connected to Newton's own time, his own life's timeline. Look at the song again from the beginning, all right? I'm going to move fast. He starts from his conversion in general. That's verse 1. And then he moves through this timeline in the song. The first moment of this timeline concerns the moment that he first saw the glory of Christ in the gospel. That's verse 2. That's the hour I first believed, right? He was lost, now he's found. And now he's talking about the hour that he first believed. Then Newton covers his whole life in a few short verses, right? He says, um, look where I've come from. Look where I'm at now and where God is leading me home. That's the future. Grace will lead me home. Verse 3 is moving into the future, And then he takes the next verse, and he takes the timeline. And instead of focusing on the past to eternity like verse 2, he changes it just a little bit up to the present life, his present life until death, as long as I am alive. So pre-conversion, moment of conversion, yeah, I'm going home. But before going home, I'm going to eventually die. So as long as life endures, and he's magnifying the grace of God up until the time he dies. In verse 5, he focuses in on the last moments of life, whenever that will be. When he dies and people don their veils, that is their mourning veils, their funeral clothing, while they weep, right, he will have a life of joy and peace, not sadness. That's grace. God's transforming death and sadness to joy and peace. And then you move to verse (coughs) 6 to see this timeline continue, and more grace is expounded upon. Newton then mentions the recreation of the world without actually saying it, okay? So now we're beyond earthly experience as we know it now, because he mentions that the celestial lights will shine no more. They will be dissolved. When does that happen? When God is going to restore creation. Why? Scripture tells us in the new creation, there's no need for these things because God will be our light. The dissolving of the heavenly lights happens after Newton's and our physical deaths. All right? It's something we'll, I pray to God, we'll get to witness in eternity. God will be his and God will be ours that moment. And then Newton moves past that to the 10,000 years, the first 10,000 years we've been in eternity. Sometime, somehow, time has passed But that doesn't mean that the end is here, right? Because life with God is eternal. We shall ever, forever sing his praise. He could have said a million years will have passed. And still the truth stands. We are no closer to the end of eternity. Forever we will praise our Savior. This grace magnifies into the depths of eternity. Grace is immeasurable. I guess that's why Newton was amazed at it, as we should be. So I don't know if you've ever taken the time to read through all the verses of the hymn or you've considered how the song was woven together. Do you you see that timeline? And sometimes it skips back a little bit and takes two sets forwards and then draws back a step, but it's gradually progressing forward. Like that's intentionality when it comes to writing a song, right? He didn't just have these random thoughts. He planned this out like a master builder of a house. He's master building a song, okay? So the song is meant to nourish your faith in Christ, from pre-conversion to all the way into eternity and everything in between. That's what Newton's doing. He's trying to comfort you through all of life. Can you see why this song has endured for so long? Now, let me just say something to help correct our understanding of hymns and worship songs. There's a false notion floating around today that says, if a song contains words like me or my or I or us or we, or if a song makes reference to my own experience, this notion says that the song is man-centered and not fit for worship. You have likely heard that, and I'm telling you that that is wrong. I dare you to read the Psalms and see how many times David talks about himself, but it's always in reference to God. It's not just about him. 
okay? For a moment, consider how, look in your song sheet. Look how many times Newton uses the word me and I and I'm and my and we've. Those words are found in all seven verses and multiple times. So I ask you, are we to believe that this song is not grace-centered, God-centered, Christ-centered? Is this song uh, not fit for public worship because it contains reference to self? Yet there are many people that carry this false sense of godliness that there can no, be no reference to self in a song or else it's man-centered. That's wrong. It's not a proper way to think about Christian hymnology. I think we must understand what it means to be man-centered. Many people have gone too far and, and, and they say wrong things about songs, that the song can only speak of God. And that's just not true, okay? A truly man-centered song is a song where man is the hero, where man is the primary focus, where man is the object of worship, and our felt needs are the end goal of worship and the lyrics being sung. Certainly, those songs, they will have, because they're man-centered, they will have me's and my's and we's and us's, but man-centered song is not just identified because, uh, as such because those words are present. If I say God saved me, is that man-centered? No, just because I make reference to the experience that I've had with God of his saving me, that is not a man-centered statement just because I'm mentioned in the sentence. It merely says that my experience in life is that God has goodness towards me. And yet many of today's great new worship songs, not all because there are some bad ones, just like there's some bad hymns, but many of today's great new worship songs are wrongly condemned because the song makes reference to our or my experience. If you dare to read the Psalms, you will find that they are very God-centered because God inspires his word. But frequently, if not always, they are centered around the person's experience with God in present reality. Nevertheless, they are always God-centered. And so, <clears throat> just wanted to throw that out there. Let's look at the structure of the song, all right? Let's analyze the song a little bit more, and then we're going to listen to a couple uh, songs here, and then we'll sing it. As we've seen, Newton's original version contains seven verses. There's no refrain, which means there's no chorus. The original hymn had no tune and may have just been chanted or spoken in public. The first instance of music that came along with Amazing Grace wasn't until 1808, right? So a little while. For the next 27 years, let me tell you this, the next 27 years, churches everywhere were using the song and they all sung it to different tunes, about 20 different tunes. The, the tune that we use now was probably not the tune that a lot of people used. So the tune that we're familiar with um, is, is the, the one that is stuck for the most part. Um, thus, we even learn from history, let me tell you this, that it's not sacrilegious to change the form or a tune of a song. Many people just about cough up a lung if, if you change anything about their favorite hymn. Like, like you are, you're, you're not a Christian, like, do you, do you even believe the gospel? What else do you deny? The Trinity, right? It, it's, it's ridiculous. I promise you there are people that staunch about their songs, and they've made uh, golden calves out of these songs, all right? Those that find it appalling or shocking to change an old, old song, you really have no moral basis. You have no theological basis for taking such a stand. That's different today with current songs because there's copyright laws which require the owner's permission. But songs like Amazing Grace, they're considered public domain, which means they're not under copyright laws. When something is public domain, it means the public has full access to use it however they want. You can mash it up, you can mangle it, put whatever tune you want, put a saxophone to it, keyboard, sing it a cappella, uh, rearrange the words, twist them around a little bit. Of course, not everybody does that, but you can quote it, reprint it, alter it, and you're not going to get sued. Right? John Newton will not come back to get you. Okay? In bygone eras, many hymns were written in something called common meter. This is going to be the most complex part of the class, okay? Common meter, abbreviated as CM. <clears throat> common meter is a way that songs are arranged. There's a certain pattern, a certain rhythm to the words. Songs with common meter, they have four lines per verse, one, two, three, four, right? Four phrases, and they alternate, here's the big words, between iambic tetrameter, and iambic trimeter, okay? I will explain what that means, all right? Notice, 
This is worse than Greek or Hebrew, okay? Notice that each verse, all right, I'm gonna, uh, I think it's up there. Put up, put, up a, put up a verse here, Christian. Amazing grace, how, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, line two. I once was lost, but now I'm found, line three. Line four is, was blind, but now I see, okay? So common meter has four lines, all right? That part's easy to get. Each verse has four lines. Let's take those big words, okay? Let me break them down. It's really easy once you understand it, and you'll see what common meter is. Iambic, weird word. You probably never used it. I certainly don't. But all it means is there's an unstressed syllable followed by a stressed syllable. Let me make sense of that for you. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Right? I'm not singing it, but do you hear the stresses? Right? It's not amazing grace. Right? It's amazing grace, how sweet. Right? You feel that? That's iambic. Okay? And we don't sing it the reverse way because you will throw everybody off, all right? Hopefully you feel the difference. Tetra means four, right? Uh, Tri means what? Three, all right? Make sure you guys aren't holding up one finger, okay? So what you have is four lines, iambic tetrameter followed by iambic trimeter, Four phrases, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. That's one line. That saved a wretch like me, right? Four little phrases of iambic, all right? Followed by three phrases with an iambic feel, okay? And then you have four lines. So it's going to go four, three, four, three. Four lines. First one is iambic tetrameter, then iambic trimeter, then iambic pentameter, and then iambic trimeter. That's called common meter. Are you with me so far? A lot of songs are written this way in hymnals so that anybody can pick up a hymnal, and as soon as you hear the tune, you start knowing how the song goes, and it's easy to pick up on, okay? So that, that's really all that uh, this means when, it, when we say common meter. It takes all of that and then just abbreviate it into the two letters CM, okay? It sounds technical, all right? Um, but songs like this, they're somewhat technical, right? They're written with intentionality. It's like when you write poems, like a haiku, there's a certain structure to it, okay? But uh, they sound technical. Um, it, it Maybe if we're not used to it in the terminology, but um, songs like Amazing Grace, they're written intentional, scriptural, and I want you to know that they're very personal. And I think, in my opinion, this is, makes for some of the best songs that people can grasp when the song or the flow or the meter that the lyrics are, are, are fueled by scripture in a way that's easy to grab onto real quick with the melody and the song and the, the meter of it, but then it becomes very personal. It's not just truths about God, but it's truths about God and how they've impacted me and they've changed me. And that's where some of the most popular hymns come from, okay? Now, perhaps this is why Amazing Grace has endured for 250 years. But I don't know if you, if you read the song, can you see how personal it is? It's Newton's life. When we sing Amazing Grace, I mean, I'm not singing about the same experiences, but I can relate well to Amazing Grace, just like uh, Newton just yanked it from his life and fused it with Scripture, and it's endured. Amazing Grace, it's, um, it's been written or recorded by people like Mahalia Jackson, Elvis Presley, Alan Jackson, for you country fans, Aretha Franklin, Carrie Underwood, Johnny Cash, Harry Connick Jr., just a few famous people to name. Um, in fact, B.J. Thomas. You know that song, Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head? Raindrops keep falling. I'm going to stop right there, right? On my head, right? He sang a version of Amazing Grace that was my favorite as a kid. I used to play my mom's records all the time, and I used to listen to it on her record player. And for my own nostalgic purposes, we're going to listen to a couple of versions of this song and then we'll close out by singing the song together. So let's listen to about two minutes of B.J. Thomas singing Amazing Grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me 
You can listen to it. You'll hear some key changes and just, uh, I know you probably don't think I like that kind of music, but uh, I, <laughs> I don't normally listen to that now, but I envision myself just sitting in our family living room, just listening to it, being blessed by the content of the song. And uh, that was as a, a preteen and even as a young teenager. But um, just wanted to share that version with you. And then this is um, normally in our church, we sing Chris Tomlin's version of Amazing Grace. But this was a version that we did uh, not too long ago. Um, this one has a little bit more energy, a little bit more celebratory. This is by um, a group called Citizens. And we'll just listen to a little bit of this as well. Amazing Grace how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I couple of different versions there are dozens of versions out there in different fields and so brothers and sisters I, I hope that you can appreciate this song a little bit more and how it's ministered to the church worldwide for the past couple centuries I hope you're a little bit more understanding of the song but even more than that I hope you can appreciate the amazing grace of our God each time we sing this song from the start of life well into eternity we all need the grace of God may you go to God's word and uncover the riches of his amazing grace. And some of you might even have a tattoo of amazing grace somewhere on your body. <laughs> All right. I know that to be true. Um, but let's do this. Uh, I'm going to close in prayer and then we're going to sing this song together. All right. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the grace that you've given us. Thank you for John Newton and his desire to see sin eradicated, the sin of slave trading and abusing people and being selfish like that. God, we thank you that he, he had an impact um, with his music and with his teachings. God, we thank you for the song Amazing Grace and how it's ministered to individuals <clears throat> or to have had to bury loved ones. It's ministered to churches and constantly reminded them of how good you are. 
and, and the congregations. Lord, may we continue to sing this song until Christ comes to get us. And uh, who knows, Lord, maybe you'll even allow us to sing it in eternity, even though we know there'll be better songs written, um, maybe songs written by angels, by believers in the kingdom, Lord, in eternal creation. Lord, I think we'll be creating wonderful music even then and singing new songs for all eternity. May you be blessed, Lord. May you be magnified. And may we be encouraged by your amazing grace as we sing about it now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>